Okay, well, I'm going to begin as uh, one uh, might well expect with Ukraine. I'm not going to try to cover everything. I'm going to try to keep um, my remarks to under an hour. Um, otherwise, I think that uh, listeners will find it uh, too exhausting. Um, okay, well, from what I read in the press, uh, British uh, defence chiefs, quote unquote, say that um, the Russian withdrawal from um, uh, around uh, Kiev and um, the north of Ukraine has been completed and that they expect a redeployment, and that could include um, some sort of turnover of uh, troops um, to take about a week as uh, additional forces are sent to the Eastern Front uh, with the objective of uh, taking uh, the entire Donbass and maybe some buffer zone. Who knows about the Southern uh, Front and uh, the land corridor uh, to uh, Crimea and maybe uh, beyond possibly uh, to Odessa. I don't know. But what I think we do know, uh, and okay, we can't say this uh, definitively, um, that is true. We can say, I believe, uh, that phase one, which was a multi-pronged um, invasion um, of Ukraine, has seen a Russian defeat in terms of Kiev. Um, I cannot believe that you have the bulk of your forces uh, driving down uh, to Kiev, starting to take uh, various uh, uh, suburbs. I, I can't believe that uh, the, the retreat uh, from that was planned from the beginning. Uh, I think it's uh, clear uh, that what we're talking about there is an attempt not only to surround that city, uh, but to take it. Now, taking it could have been done, uh, as has been suggested by paratroopers. It could have been done by simply laying, um, you know, placing it under siege and bombarding it. Who knows? Uh, but uh, the attempt was there. The attempt was to take Kiev and presumably uh, to decapitate uh, the regime. And I, I think all the evidence shows in terms of logistics, uh, the question of supplies, uh, that those planning this war in the Kremlin thought it would be over uh, in a very short period of time. And I have to say, not that I predicted uh, the invasion, uh, but my own reading of the situation was that that's why there wouldn't be an invasion because if you've got what was reported at the time 130,000 troops gathered on the border that simply wasn't enough and my belief was that yeah it's quite possible that Russian forces could take uh, Kiev but could they hold uh, a country of 45 million uh, that I was uh, doubtful of. Well, as it's been shown in practice, um, you know, that wasn't enough uh, to even uh, take uh, uh, Kiev. 
And, um, you know, there's all sorts of um, arguments going on about um, why uh, Russia's failed or why, if you want, uh, Ukrainian forces have uh, succeeded. Uh, I think there are a whole number uh, of different reasons, uh, but I would single out two. Uh, and that is, first of all, on the Russian side, simply bad intelligence, almost unbelievably bad intelligence, i.e. the idea that uh, the Ukrainian population would either greet them as liberators, you know, from the Nazis, uh, or would be indifferent uh, to incoming uh, Russian troops. That clearly uh, hasn't happened. Uh, quite the opposite. It's stoked up, as one would have surely, surely would have been able to predict, a sort of NATO-armed people's war. Okay, I don't know um, how Russian uh, Ukrainians um, are thinking about the situation. They amount to, you know, a sizable a percentage of the population, something like um, 18%, but that will include those in Crimea, that will include those uh, in the Donbass. Either way, uh, that doesn't seem to have happened. So uh, instead of being greeted e either as liberators or indifferently, uh, we've seen the opposite. We've also seen, I think, um, on the Russian side, low morale, um, no idea really what the war aims are, um, extremely bad uh, logistics, but also what we've seen, uh, I think, is evidence that there's been a revolution uh, in warfare. And what used to be the king of the battlefield, uh, the tank, um, it's not that that is no longer relevant uh, to modern warfare, uh, but it's just that it's become very vulnerable uh, to drones, which are either up there flying for hour after hour, locating tanks and guiding in other uh, munitions or unleashing its own munitions. And again, from what I've read, that the tanks that have been deployed in um, Ukraine are basically old uh, Soviet era uh, tanks, you know, T-72s. Uh, uh, T T82s, if I'm getting my numbers uh, right, and uh, what is notable about them is that the armor at the top uh, is thin. Either way, we've seen hundreds uh, of Russian tanks taken out, either uh, through the use of drone power uh, or through Enlor um, missiles um, or javelin uh, uh, missiles. Um, what will happen in the East, again, is impossible uh, to say. Um, you know, from what I understand, the bulk of uh, the Ukrainian armed forces were concentrated uh, in the East. Um, so the addition of um, large numbers of additional Russian fighting formations, either directly on the East or coming at them um, from behind, uh, might uh, produce a decisive uh, shift um, in, in terms of the, the battlefield. Um, it, it, it's impossible to say. What we do know is in this, um, how should I put it, uh, window uh, between um, decisive engagement uh, of the new Russian forces in the east um, and where we sit at the present, there's a real push going on 
from NATO uh, to supply Ukraine with extra uh, weapons. And uh, uh, at the moment, that doesn't really include tanks. I know, what was it, uh, the Czech Republic has supplied or is supplying 12, is it, old T-72s? Maybe Poland will come in there. I don't know. Either way, when it comes to these uh, drones, when it comes to shoulder-launched uh, missiles, they are being pushed in uh, in a big way. And again, my understanding is uh, that not only will there be this sort of technology, there'll also be the older technology of um, um, field artillery, uh, but it will be NATO uh, filled uh, artillery rather than supplying uh, munitions to Ukraine's existing, um, um, ha, how should you put it, um, 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 uh, artillery, simply because uh, NATO uh, operates a different uh, standard uh, compared with um, the Soviet Union stroke uh, Russia. Either way, we don't know what uh, the result will be um, on uh, the battlefield. For what it's worth, and it ain't worth very much, uh, my guess. Uh, would be at some point either uh, an armistice or, or some sort of negotiations uh, that um, produce a neither war uh, nor peace uh, situation. You know, so uh, we're still technically uh, in a world where, you know, North Korea is still at war. I don't know with the UN, but certainly with the United States and, and South Korea. Uh, uh, for example, that is quite uh, conceivable. And certainly if you look at various politicians in NATO, um, there seems to be a hardening going on, urging Zelensky uh, not to give way uh, in terms of um, territorial uh, concessions. So no concession uh, when it comes to Donbass. And we've already heard, haven't we, um, from talks in Istanbul um, that um, at least Ukraine is prepared to consider some sort of 15-year deal uh, with Russia and then a review. But in other words, no concession on uh, Ukraine's territorial uh, integrity. That seems to be a hardening uh, position. And I, I think that it's hardening simply because at the moment, um, Russia militarily hasn't done well uh, and Ukraine has done well. Now, that could change very quickly. And so we don't want to write off uh, the Russian army. Uh, we don't want to write off Russian generals and logistics. Uh, you know, Russia has a huge population, has large resources, and could quite easily uh, get its act together. Um, and that's what you would have expected at the beginning. And the fact that they haven't uh, got their act together thus far uh, doesn't mean over the next month or so uh, that won't happen. So we're now into phase two, and uh, we're told, um, I think, um, from the West uh, that the Russian forces have a new commander, and that is uh, General Alexander Donvich. That's about the best pronunciation you're going to get from me. Uh, at the moment, and we're meant to trem tremble uh, over this name because we're told that this general has had experience, leading experience in um, Syria, 
And that's meant to conjure up um, images of, um, you know, gas and chemical uh, warfare um, and um, untold uh, human suffering. And um, certainly um, in terms of uh, recent press reports, uh, the media has been um, gung ho uh, for the latest uh, outrages. And we've had reports of, um, you know, killings in Butcher, killings, you know, at the um, uh, railway station of 50 uh, people, Russia either denying it out and out or stories, you know, uh, admittedly from the West uh, that perhaps this missile uh, was hit uh, in flight and came down there. That seems um, possible, but I, I think unlikely. Either way, what I would emphasize, uh, you know, is that, yes, there's terrible, terrible, terrible human suffering. We don't know how many Russian soldiers have been killed. We don't know how many uh, Ukrainian civilians or soldiers have been killed, other than to say that what we're dealing with is large numbers um, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, modern European uh, history. And, you know, when I read uh, descriptions of uh, what's happening in Ukraine, I cannot but help feeling, you know, human sympathy and including human sympathy, by the way, uh, you know, for the guys that are driving tanks that are almost treated by sections of the British press uh, as if we're playing some sort of uh, video game, you know, bang, 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 there's a Russian tank uh, knocked out. What about the guys inside it? You know, they've got mothers, <laughs> they're human beings. They're not just things. You know, we need to uh, understand that there's suffering on all sides. War is a terrible, terrible thing. But what I'm reminded of in terms of my uh, growing up and my politicization is watching the Vietnam War being played out on our TV screens and watching American film of B-52s un unleash their loads, you know, un unleash their terror weapons uh, on the Vietnamese uh, countryside, on Vietnamese villages, on Vietnamese cities. And, uh, you know, as someone who's actually gone on holiday uh, uh, to Vietnam, one of the first things that struck me traveling uh, uh, down Vietnam on, on the railway is you go past village after village after village. And the first village I just looked at out of the train window, I went, bloody hell. They've got an awful lot of fish ponds. That was my first reaction. It took me about five seconds to work out what those fish ponds were. They are fish ponds now, but every village seemed to have 10 fish ponds. These are craters, craters produced by American bombs. Uh, and if you look at the Vietnam War, right, I don't know offhand how many American um, how many Americans died? It's in the tens of thousands. I think the figure that comes to my mind is something like 30,000. I could be wrong. But the estimates of the number of Vietnamese that died is of the order, and that can only be a rough and ready, but is of the order of a million. And I haven't been uh, to Laos, but as my, my understanding is that Laos was bombed far more intensely, the so-called Ho Chi Minh a trail that joined uh, uh, Vietnam in terms of supplies, North uh, and South. The forces of the National Liberation Movement were supplied via 
the Ho Chi Minh Trail and, and the Americans unleashed, um, you know, more bombs. That's my understanding in, in terms of explosive power uh, in that war than was used throughout uh, the entire um, uh, history of uh, World War II. Just gives you an idea. Uh, of what the United States un unlaunched. So what is going on uh, in Ukraine is absolutely terrible. And, uh, you know, I would uh, condemn uh, the Russian action uh, in Ukraine, but I do think it needs to be put in the context of not only what I've just been talking about, but also what the United States has been doing uh, to other parts of the world, either directly uh, using its military uh, might or indirectly, so, you know, the unseen death uh, that U.S. imperialism brings uh, through things like IMF and World Bank restructuring uh, uh, programs, um, you know, i.e. starving uh, the poorest sections of the population, causing mass migrations, um, you name it. Uh, this is the sort of silent killer. And it's with that in mind uh, that I just wanted to comment on an article that I just read uh, in Foreign Affairs. And this is by a US uh, neocon, uh, Robert Kagan. Um, and this basically presents a picture of uh, Russia as a um, horrible imperial power on the one side that just brings poverty to anyone who aligns themselves uh, with, um, with, with, with Moscow and the picture of the West, the United States, NATO, and the EU. And the picture that this guy paints uh, is basically, well, look, people voluntarily join NATO, people voluntarily uh, uh, join the EU. And this is the sort of prospect uh, that attracts Ukraine. And I think that's true, uh, that if you look at Eastern Europeans, uh, they basically looked to the EU and they looked to NATO and said, we'll have some of that. And um, that's perfectly understandable. I do remember at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, who was editor of the Times uh, at the time, uh, was writing long um, articles about what uh, uh, the West had to offer uh, the Soviet Union. And what he said is, well, you can have Swedish levels of social security and West German levels uh, of uh, living standards. And my response at the time was, you must be joking. The reality uh, would be more like Brazil, more like Turkey, uh, that actually that is what would happen um, if there was the restoration of capitalism uh, in the Soviet Union. And well, what happened? Uh, under Yeltsin was worse uh, than I could possibly uh, have imagined. Uh, what we saw is a massive drop in living standards. We saw a gangster uh, capitalism, uh, the seizure of um, you know nationalized uh, industries. And we also saw, I think, which is the perhaps the best way to judge um, the level of civilization uh, of a country, not an increase in life expectancy, but a massive, you know, falling off the cliff decrease in life expectancy. Massive in Russia, uh, but even more precipitous, actually, uh, in uh, Ukraine. And, you know, what I would say 
uh, if there was a um, a Western, I'll call it a Western uh, victory uh, in Ukraine, because that's the reality of what's going on. It's a proxy uh, uh, war. If there was a Western victory, I don't know what would happen to living standards of ordinary Ukrainians. They, they could make the political decision uh, to boost them up. Uh, they could pour in all uh, manner of aid. That is quite feasible. What I do know is that that is not going to be the end of the story. Uh, you know, we saw Biden let out um, in Warsaw what we all know and what we've known uh, for a long, long time is that the United States has its eye on total domination of what uh, strategists call the global island, i.e. Euro, Asia. And, uh, you know, if, if Kiev wins, uh, next it's going to be Moscow. And after that, it's going to be Beijing. And what that will involve is, isn't, def definitely isn't, uh, you know, West German or German now living standards or what remains of um, Swedish uh, levels of social security. What is in prospect is to use a phrase, it's not a very good phrase, a third worldization, a, a, um, a bringing of um, anarchy and destruction uh, uh, to these countries, a subordination uh, of these countries, uh, a reduction of these countries. Yes, uh, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases uh, to what we've seen in Iraq, what we've seen in Syria, what we've seen in Afghanistan and what we've seen in Libya. That's really what we're talking about. So we shouldn't just view this struggle simply uh, through the eyes of Ukraine and what happened, you know, in terms of the headlines in Ukraine uh, yesterday. We really do need the bigger picture. We need to understand what is really going on. And I, I readily accept that, you know, uh, amongst Putin's circle, uh, maybe in Putin's mind, he's got dreams of a, a greater Russia, a new Russian um, empire, um, you know, but at the moment, it, it seems quite the opposite uh, to me, uh, that what is in prospect is a rebooting of US hegemony, but under conditions of where the US is in relative decline. So we're not dealing with the unleashing of American dynamism, what we're dealing with uh, is, is a situation of where the United States isn't going to establish a direct empire like the old British empire, the old French empire, with direct colonial officials and administering, you know, the railways and the industries and the tax system and the police system. No, what we're what we're going to see, and this is the this is what I'm warning about, is precisely. Um, you know, chaos. Uh, that's what the United States is determined to uh, unleash. I don't think it's really got a choice. And in that sense, if we look at some of the boasts that there have been, you know, about how many millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 20 years or 30 years that you usually hear from the UN, isn't it worthwhile knowing that the vast majority of those people who've been lifted out of poverty, happen to live in China, uh, not in the Congo, uh, not in the Middle East, not in North Africa, not in Sub-Saharan um, uh, Africa, not in uh, Latin America. 
Um, so in terms of what the United States is bringing, this is not civilization um, in any sense. Uh, what it's bringing is actually regression. So uh, in terms of uh, the foreign affairs article, yes, it's an intelligent article uh, by Kagan, but we need to understand actually the bigger picture. And what's disturbing to me is when I read correspondence from, um, you know, comrades on the left, well, I'm calling them comrades, um, such as uh, Robert Brenner, um, who's saying what an excellent article uh, uh, this is and how the left all ought to read it. Well, I agree that the left ought to read it, uh, but they ought to read it precisely uh, with a wider uh, a vision than is provided by Kagan. And the fact that some left-wingers fall uh, for this sort of line, um, I have to say, well, do I find it surprising? I'm not sure. I find it objectionable. I find it shocking. Um, but given the state of the left, maybe I don't find it uh, surprising. But what we've seen, yes, um, is a collapse of... Um, much of the left in Britain, I can't speak for other countries. It's a very varied uh, pattern uh, from what I can understand. Uh, but in Britain, um, yes, we've seen uh, the, the left of the Labour Party, uh, organisations such as uh, Labour Representation Committee, Labour Briefing, uh, but also um, organisations that have, for example, split uh, from the Socialist Workers' Party, the organization that calls itself RS21, uh, Revolutionary Socialism in the 21st century. These have all lined up uh, behind this organization called the um, Ukrainian um, Solidarity Campaign, which has roots. I mean, it's there in black and white. You can read it in terms of declassified CIA uh, documents has, has roots in organizations sponsored and paid for uh, by the CIA. And uh, the fact that um, um, these organizations have lined up under the banner of this um, organization, uh, I, I, I think speaks volumes uh, about the state of health uh, of the left uh, today. But I also wanted to add in uh, that it's not only those that have gone over uh, to social imperialism. Social, Im social imperialism, by the way, shouldn't be confused with just plain old everyday imperialism of the sort that's, you know, pushed uh, by the likes of Sir Keir Starmer uh, and the Labour Party. There's no difference between the Labour Party's pro-imperialism, the Tory party, or the Liberal Democrats, or for that matter, uh, the Democrats in the United States or uh, Macron uh, in France. That's just plain old everyday imperialism. Social imperialism needs to be understood, the advocacy um, of imperialism using socialistic or socialist excuses. That's what social uh, imperialism is. So, for example, in World War I, um, many German uh, social democrats advocated uh, um, defense of their homeland. Uh, they advocated uh, the victory of their own side, for example, uh, by going through the works of Karl Marx uh, when it came to Tsarist Russia. And they found all the quotes from Karl Marx saying, you know, the biggest blow uh, uh, for European democracy would be the, the defeat 
uh, of Russia. And that became their justification, but a socialist uh, justification uh, for imperialism in the same way uh, that there were debates in the Second International in favor of colonialism using um, socialist language. So we need to understand what categories uh, we're talking about. Hence uh, my critique of um, our Stop the War Coalition uh, in Britain. Uh, this is an organization born of uh, opposition to the Afghan war, but crucially uh, to the Iraq uh, war and the you know ousting of Saddam Hussein on the basis of um, him just about to launch weapons of mass destruction, which were going to arrive in London um, within 45 minutes. Um, a lie, obviously. Um, that's why we didn't believe, you know, <laughs> what the CIA and MI6 were telling us this time round uh, about Putin's uh, intentions. You know, we'd heard the dog bark, or is it, yeah, the dog bark, how many times, I don't know. Either way, uh, the point would be that if we look at Stop the War Coalition uh, and what it's calling for now, I would find it hard. I'll call it social pacifism, uh, but where exactly the social comes in, uh, I don't know. I think that comes down uh, later in terms of the various organizations supporting it rather than the Stop the War Coalition uh, itself. So this is a this is this is a quote directly taken from the publicity material um, of Stop the War Coalition in terms of its day of action uh, yesterday. And what it says, it calls upon the British government to set aside all belligerent language and to encourage the participants in the ongoing peace talks to negotiate an immediate ceasefire, withdraw of Russian troops and a full and lasting peace. Well, I would actually call that NATO's war aims. That's what I would uh, uh, call that. Uh, have an immediate ceasefire, all Russian forces withdraw from Ukraine. I'm taking that um, you know, on face value, that that would include all of Donbass, and I'm taking it on face value that that would include all of Crimea as well. So in other words, uh, yes, uh, this is the NATO dream uh, scenario. And the idea that is being put forward by um, Stop the War Coalition, that there can be a quote unquote, a full and lasting peace under capitalism negotiated on the one side by the Zelensky uh, regime in Kiev and the Putin regime um, in Moscow uh, backed, um, you know, in terms of um, Zelensky uh, by NATO, uh, I just think is pure bourgeois pacifism. Um, so hence my least hesitancy, I will still call it social pacifism, simply because of the characters that are involved in this organization. Uh, but it does seem to me to be pure pacifism. So who's involved in it? Well, John Rees, Lindsay German, Chris Nynam, people that split uh, from the uh, Socialist Workers' Party. But also now today, the Socialist Workers' Party itself is backing Stop the War, War Coalition. It also includes backers in the Morning Stars, you know, Communist Party of Britain, and individuals, former members of the CPB, 
um, such as, in terms of the most leading prominent figure, uh, Andrew uh, Murray, um, who I think was chair uh, of Stop the War uh, Coalition. Elsewhere in um, the um, Stop the War Coalition's publicity, we have the call uh, No to NATO Expansion. Well, other than Sweden and Finland, I don't think there are any real plans uh, for NATO Eastern uh, expansion unless they won uh, their dream uh, victory that's already been described, you know, in terms of um, Stop the War Coalition's um, uh, propaganda, i.e. full Russian withdrawal and a, and a lasting peace. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and in other words, under those circumstances, yes, there would be an eastern expansion of NATO into Ukraine. And uh, following that, what would happen? Well, depending on what's going on in Moscow, I don't know. But one would expect that process of expansion uh, under those circumstances to continue into Georgia and there to be another war in Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The United States is not going to stop. And that's basically my argument. And it's not going to stop in the form of NATO armies uh, going east. But the use of proxies, uh, that will continue. And there are plenty of candidate proxies uh, out there uh, for uh, the United States. So I just wanted to repeat the standard Leninist uh, uh, formulation uh, that there can be no lasting peace um, under capitalism, uh, that all pieces uh, under capitalism is preparation uh, for the next war. Um, in other words, you know, we would go back in terms of the origin of that insight, I'm guessing, uh, to Klautzwitz and his uh, classic work on war, uh, where he described um, war as merely uh, the continuation of policy um, by other, i.e. bracket, violent uh, means. That's actually what peace is uh, under uh, capitalism, and that's what war is uh, under capitalism. So war is the continuation of peace, and peace is the continuation of war. That is something surely uh, people such as John Rees, Lindsay German, Chris Nynam, Andrew Murray ought to uh, understand. But the fact that they don't understand it now doesn't show a deficit in Marxist study. What it shows is a determination to maintain their organizational and political links with the social imperialist right. And I'm including the labor left in that, I'm including the trade union bureaucracy uh, uh, in, in that category. In other words, the SWP, Stop the War Coalition and other such organizations um, want to have the presence of um, what they regard as um, respectable figures uh, gracing their conferences uh, and um, a popular front uh, uh, campaigns. Okay, so what can we do under these circumstances? Uh, all we can do at the present time is make propaganda along those lines, uh, that the problem is capitalism. Uh, that we do not make propaganda, certainly uh, for the victory of Putin, uh, but we recognize 
that yes, the main enemy is at home. Uh, and the best thing we can do is build a party, uh, build a, a revolutionary uh, movement, not a peace movement, but a revolutionary uh, a movement. And that needs, uh, um, you know, in terms of where we begin, that means not only attacking the social imperialists that have gone over uh, to the NATO side in this and previous uh, conflicts, it also must involve a criticism, a ruthless criticism of social pacifism, uh, because social pacifism actually is organically tied uh, to the right, is actually organically tied to capitalism and actually operates in objectively in the service uh, of capitalism. OK, I want to move on now. And this is turning to British domestic politics, and this is the politics of uh, austerity, the cost of living crisis. But crucially, what it is, is Rishi Sunak and his wife, uh, Mertie. And I don't know what she's worth in total, but my understanding is she has something like half a billion's worth in terms of pounds, uh, shares, um, in the company uh, that our father uh, founded. And what is uh, scandalous in terms of British politics at, at this moment in time is, of course, that uh, as a result of um, um, buying um, non-dom, non-domicile -dom uh, status, uh, what she and he, uh, what they as a couple, what she as an individual taxpayer has saved is of the order of 20 million pounds thus far. Um, so, so what we have is a storm of protest and initially uh, Sunak uh, went round the TV stations, went round the radio stations, did interviews with the press, basically saying, what's my wife's finances got to do with anything? She hasn't broke any laws, very true. Uh, she's abided by all the uh, tax uh, regulations. What's this got to do with anything? Um, but then we saw uh, a sudden U-turn and she announced that in the name of British values of fairness, uh, that she would change her um, status and pay British uh, taxes. Well, uh, why the about turn? Clearly, it's got to do with the political ambitions of her husband. And um, it's an open secret uh, that if uh, Boris Johnson went down uh, to the party gate uh, scandal, um, then it would either be Rushi or Liz, Liz Truss, uh, the present foreign secretary, uh, that would be in the running uh, to take his job. I have to say that although my uh, betting on Boris Johnson was roughly speaking 50-50, would he survive? He's been lucky. Uh, we've seen the photographs of there he is in Kiev shaking hands with, with Zelensky, uh, the great uh, hero of the hour. And of course, what Boris Johnson and his allies have been claiming, will claim, whatever the police report, whatever Sue Gray reports about parties in number 10 uh, and the consumption of alcohol. And did he know there was a party going on when people were sitting in the garden drinking this alcohol? 
the chances are he will survive because there are more important things uh, to do than worry ourselves over, you know, a hundred quid fine uh, for breaking COVID uh, regulations. And of course, um, the very fact that we now know about Murty's um, tax affairs and for that matter, Sunak's, Sunak's uh, tax affairs, his green card, how that obliges you to have the aim of permanently living in the United States. And he had that green card while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So here we have a British Chancellor of the Exchequer that's uh, committed himself to permanently living in the United States. That's my understanding of a green card. I could be wrong. I've never had one. Either way, the reason why we know all about her tax affairs and we know about Sunak's uh, tax affairs is it's leaked. This isn't something that he volunteered. And the story in uh, the press is, well, either it's the Labour Party. Well, how did they get this information? Maybe there's, um, you know, uh, um, how should I put it, uh, a secret Labour Party mole there in the um, civil service. I don't know. But the, the main rumour uh, is uh, that it's number 10, um, that this is um, on the nod and the wink of Boris Johnson getting his um, uh, most important rival, you know, putting a hole in his leadership bid. And that's, the, that's now the general consensus, uh, that it's not a question of um, Sunak being sacked as Chancellor uh, of the Exchequer, uh, but now um, uh, uh, Johnson's biggest rival, if he was done under Partygate, has been blown out of the water, uh, that Sunak is not seen uh, by Tory MPs as a serious contender anymore uh, for prime minister, for leader uh, of the Tory party. And the fact that we, you know, we had people writing into the Weekly Worker um, a few months ago saying, Sunak, he will save us from uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, <laughs> Well, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, I mean, be careful for what you wish for. I mean, his reputation uh, was always as a, a tax cutter, but it doesn't matter. The point is uh, that what we really need to be concentrating on is not whether it's uh, uh, Labour or Tory, you know, Boris Johnson or Keir, or for that matter, whether it's uh, Joe Biden or whoever the uh, uh, Republicans come up with next time, Trump second time round, who the hell knows? That's not our job. Our job, just like it is on the global scale, is not to choose between Putin and Zelensky, not between, you know, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. The key question is the working class, building a working class party, working class political independence. That's the key question. Where you fight for that, that's a secondary uh, question. But that is the fight. And the fact of the matter is, where in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century, and well into the 20th century for that matter, the working class constituted a sort of world power in its own right that no longer exists. And that is what is missing both in British domestic politics, but also tragically um, um, in international uh, uh, politics.
Anyway, moving on, and I'll be very quick now. So what's the time? So quarter an hour, and uh, I'll wrap up within, within that. Okay, France. Uh, a lot of headlines, a lot of editorialising in the British press uh, about the danger of a Le Pen victory. Um, the latest opinion polls show uh, Le Pen only 2% behind uh, Macron. Uh, we're all meant to be panicking, and that's the idea. Uh, that's my version of it. I could be totally wrong. My version of it is whoever wins, there's going to be one winner, and that's Macron. Because if Macron comes second, there will still be a second round. And what will happen, however reluctantly, what passes for the left in France, what passes for, um, you know, um, how should you put it, the mainstream bourgeois uh, politics, that will go to Macron. Um, Le Pen uh, will pick up the hard right vote and she will come second. That's my reading of it. And the tragedy of France is precisely uh, it wasn't that long ago uh, of when it was the left that got uh, the, um, the bourgeois press, the bourgeois media editorializing about the dangers of communism uh, in France, i.e. the French Communist Party in alliance uh, with the French Socialist Party, what it, how exactly you characterize either party uh, is debatable. <laughs> either way, uh, that from a, uh, um, a US point of view, uh, this was something to be guarded against because these people would be seen to be soft on the Soviet Union, um, anti-NATO, anti-EU, and therefore a danger that needed to be dealt with. Uh, they never came uh, seriously, um, you know, in danger of where NATO was going to be called into question precisely. When we did see uh, this bloc come uh, to office under Mitterrand, uh, what you had is the classic formula that comes from these popular front governments. The Communist Party was given the Ministry of Labour, uh, which might be about uh, extra trade union rights, but crucially, it's about stopping strikes. Meanwhile, Mitterrand, the firebrand, of 1968, who called for a provisional government, uh, actually um, proved to be entirely pro unproblematic when it comes to NATO, unproblematic uh, when it comes to the EU. And indeed, if you look at his economic program, which began as some sort of Keynesian uh, stimulus program, this is in the late 60s, it turned into its opposite. There was a run on the franc and uh, what uh, this uh, left-wing government ended up doing is presiding over austerity. And of course, uh, the working class then gets disillusioned and either stops voting uh, for these people or votes uh, for the right. And uh, hence uh, the tragedy um, of uh, the left in France, which used to be a power, will come maybe third uh, this time around. But just look at the French Communist Party. 2%, 3%, that's what they'll get in the first round. I mean, basically, the party has been uh, liquidated. Okay, so that's my prediction for France. And the last point I just wanted to touch upon in my last couple of minutes is the whole question of energy. And um, we've seen a real change um, when it comes to energy in terms of geopolitics, 
um, you know, Germany, Nord, uh, Nord Stream 2, um, stuff about no longer importing Russian oil, Russian coal in Britain, um, which isn't in the same position as Italy, the Netherlands, let alone Germany. Um, uh, what we've seen is an energy program just been announced uh, that will see renewed exploration and exploitation of oil and gas in the North Sea. Uh, this is um, th the excuse here is that we're shifting from Russian supplies to domestic supplies to guarantee uh, us power. But also what we're seeing is a big turn uh, to nuclear uh, power. And uh, bizarrely, I'm not quite sure, except for what we call nimbyism, not in my backyard, um, no great push uh, when it comes to onshore uh, wind, uh, which is far cheaper uh, than, um, you know, um, off coast, far, far cheaper. I think it's the cheapest source of um, energy uh, by far. OK, of course, um, it doesn't always blow, does it? Um, in Britain. It's a, it's a windy place, but it doesn't always blow. So you can't just have wind farms. And the technology isn't there in terms of batteries uh, uh, to cover peak supply and all the rest of it. So I'm not going to put forward my energy program or the CPGB's energy program at the moment. Just to say, though, uh, that this uh, shift to nuclear power is going to be done uh, under the name of green and meeting COP26, it will not succeed in doing that. And simply to make the point that nuclear, at least thus far, in spite of the promises that I was brought up with as a kid, where electricity would be so cheap that they wouldn't bother billing anyone. That was, Britain, remember, had the first, uh, um, you know, um, civilian uh, nuclear power uh, plant. Uh, that's how they sold it uh, to us. Uh, instead of it being so cheap, you don't need to bill it. Uh, it's the most expensive uh, source. So it's it's more expensive than coal, more expensive than gas, more expensive, obviously, than um, wind farms out there in the sea, more expensive, certainly, than wind farms um, on uh, shore. Um, so I was simply going to make this point, uh, that uh, just looking uh, at the Ukraine war, and uh, looking at the stories of Russian soldiers dying uh, from radiation poisoning uh, at Chernobyl and looking at the hue, hue and cry, quite rightly, of um, this uh, uh, Ukrainian nuclear plant. I think it was further to the east uh, that was um, uh, in terms of some outbuilding, which was hit by a Russian um, um, artillery shell. Um, I think that should tell you something about the nature of nuclear uh, power. Uh, it's dangerous. It's expensive. It also takes a long time, in spite of the promises of the engineers, to get up running. So we're usually told in Britain that the project will take 10 years, while the average actually turns out to be 20 uh, years. So this isn't an answer uh, to global warming. Um, uh, this is something else. Um, I'm not going to uh, go there. Suffice to say, we'll have an article in the Weekly Worker making our argument against nuclear power. We'll also have an, ar uh, uh, an article um, on the question of uh, nuclear fusion, uh, which is a nuclear technology 
uh, but working according to the opposite principles of our existing uh, nuclear uh, power um, industry. And with that, Kevin, I shall come to uh, stop. <laughs>